0: Welcome to the first official episode of Screaming Through the Ages, a horror movie history podcast, where we aim to give you a bi-weekly horror movie history lesson. My name is Trey Whetstone, and I'll be your host for this show. Now this is going to be our first episode on our Val Luton Creator Spotlight. Not every episode is going to be this Creator Spotlight where we delve into a career of a certain horror filmmaker, a director, a producer, writer, so on and so forth, but this is what we're starting with. I wanted to start with Val Lewton because there's just so much rich content behind his life and everything he went through and the just landmark titles that he gave to the industry. He also was responsible for a lot of the things we've seen in horror films since. I'll give you the itinerary for tonight. We are starting chapter one, as we're going to call it from now on. This is episode one of what I'm planning to be a five-part series for chapter one on the life and career of Val Luton. Today we're going to start out with going into Val's early life and what he went through coming over to America and getting his start in the film industry. And then we're going into our only movie for the night. Usually we'll talk about two, but tonight since there's so much content here, we're going to be discussing one in particular, and that'll be Cat People. If you're all ready, please open your textbooks to Chapter 1, and we'll begin this week's lesson. Val Lewton was born on May 7th, 1904 in Yalta, Russian Empire, which is now the Ukraine area. His birth name was Vladimir Ivanovich Leventon. Val's mother, Nina, decided to leave her husband and took Val and his sister Lucy And they first immigrated to Germany and then came to the United States in 1909. When they originally came over, they were living with Val's aunt, um, a la Nazimova, who was an actress, a pretty famous actress at the time. And they eventually were able to get out and move to Port Chester, New York. When Val went by his father's last name when he came over to the United States, But eventually he did change his name, and it was shortened to Val Lewton, and that's what everybody had called him from then on out. Val studied journalism at Columbia University, and then before he got into the movie industry, he actually was writing novels, and he wrote a best-selling novel in 1932 called No Bed of Her Own. After he got out of the novel business, he went to writing novelizations of films for magazines. So that was the pre-film era of Val Lewton. Um, not a lot to go on there, but I mean, just thinking about coming over to the United States, it couldn't have been easy leaving your country for his mother and just taking your children, moving to the United States to try to find a better life. Um, so far, Val had not found it. I mean, he was able to get educated Um, at Columbia University to do journalism, but kind of just writing and not going where he wanted it to go. So now we get into the connection where how Val actually got to Hollywood. His mother, Nina, was a writer for the movies. She had some connections there. So Val packed up, he moved to Hollywood area, and Nina was able to recommend him to David Selznick, who was a producer. Now, under Selznick, Luton did a wide variety of work. He was a story editor, he was a script doctor, and he did a lot of research in his role with Selznick. Taught him a lot. From what I'm understanding, he learned a lot from Selznick that would permeate into his later films and his later techniques. He also worked on a lot of big films at the time, big novel adaptations. I mean, we look at it, he worked on Tale of Two Cities, he worked on Gone with the Wind not any glamorous roles as we're going to find out that Mr. Luton did not like to be in the public eye or he didn't want to be the one taking all the credit for things. On the aforementioned Tale Two Cities in 1936 Luton met Jacques Turner. The two became friends and this would vastly influence Luton as well so we see here we've got a couple of events that happened. We've got Luton learning how to do things in the business under David Selznick. And then we've got him meeting a friend, Jacques Turner. This would just set him up for success later and really get into how he gets his chops and his background in making films and how he was offered the position he was offered in the first place. Now he did, again, he was working on these bigger A pictures like Gone with the Wind with Selznick. But he was ultimately dissatisfied with his work he couldn't get his ideas and his creativity out there he was basically just doing what they wanted him to do the work that he was working on and i don't think the a pictures were really his style or at least the ones he didn't have control over the story We get to RKO, which, if you're not familiar, RKO Pictures used to be one of the eight majors back under the old golden era studio system in Hollywood. RKO was working with Orson Welles a lot, and I think Orson Welles was defining a lot of what was going on in the studio at the time. Well, Mr. Welles was getting pushed out of RKO at the time, and they were looking to go in a different direction In 1940, they hired Val Luton. What Val was hired to do was to come in and create B-movies. There was a whole new division that they were putting together to do these low-budget pictures to compete with Universal. Now, Universal at the time, for its horror films, its horror offerings, they were usually doing budgets around $300,000 to $1 million, anywhere in there. So they could be some pretty substantially big-budget films. Well, RKO wanted to put this crew together to do films that would be budgeted around 125000 apiece. And they were supposed to compete with this juggernaut of Universal. And Let's take a step back and think about that for a second. were being brought on to make these very low-budget films, and you're going to compete with the studio that's out there putting out things like Frankenstein and Dracula and these seminal pictures. I'm sure it was a daunting task, but knowing what we do about Luton... This was probably a pretty good challenge for him. He's going to be given some creative freedom here. He can take this horror unit and really make his mark on the industry. So what might have seemed like a task that some people didn't want, I'm sure Luton was pretty excited about this. It was said that Val was very concerned about what Selznick would think about him jumping ship and going to RKO, But Luton himself wrote that Selznick actually negotiated his first contract with RKO, which was really cool to see a mentor be okay with their people leaving the nest. I did say he wrote there, and that's going to be a recurring theme because there's not one single recording of Val Luton's voice. We don't know anything about what he sounded like. We have writings to go off of where he was talking about his feelings. We have secondary testimony from people about you know what was going through Val's head but we don't have any direct interviews or any kind of voice going back to what I was saying earlier Val Luton did not like to be in the spotlight he took most of his writing credits were uncredited and we're going to find that out going forward they only did a couple credits and he didn't even use his name he used a pseudonym so we've got this all set up Val Luton has his horror unit At RKO Pictures. He's going to head this horror studio and compete against Universal. To recap, he's going to bring in a team here to work with. His team was mainly consisting of people he had worked with in the past. First, we have uh, Jacques Turner, of course, who he had worked with um, on Tale of Two Cities. He brought him in to be the director of his films. There's piece number one. Brought in Mark Robeson, who had assisted on Citizen Kane, and he was an editor I think Robeson felt that he was demoted because he had worked with Orson Welles, and that kind of gave people a bad rap around RKO. Then there was DeWitt Bodine, who was going to be the writer writing the screenplays for these films. He's got this unit put together, and they're all ready to start making films. Now, one of the things that Tavao had learned from David Selznick was really taking a major role in most of the aspects of the film you're making. Val Luton isn't the typical producer. He's not even like a Jason Blum level. He's much more hands-on, and he's in there. I think usually a producer is there to make sure everything's going smoothly, get everyone in the positions they need to be, move things along, making sure the final product is good. Val Luton did that. He just took it kind of a step further, and he learned a lot of this. This was one of the things that he did learn from David Selznick that he took to heart, and he really tried to supervise everything. I mean, he worked on the set design and costumes, or at least supervised it, and he supervised the casting. He would go in and rewrite most of the scripts. He did a lot of script treatments and script doctoring, like he did with Selznick. He did all this without credit. So you can tell that Val Luton really cares about what he's doing. He really cares about the work. He wants to dig in and get into every part of this to make sure these films succeed. Things are moving along great at this point, right? We've got a team set up. We've got everything put together. Val Luton is ready to unleash his creativity into the world. Well, he'll run into his first obstacle, and it won't be the last for sure. The way RKO was planning on doing things with their horror movie B-Division was they were going to take these titles and they would give Luton and his team the title and they would make a horror movie out of it. Well, you can see how that's kind of... Backwards, you would think the last thing you would want to do for a film was come up with a name or maybe some way along in production, definitely not at the front before you have any idea or anything. So you're already confined to this name. And the story behind that uh, Charles Kerner, who was the head of RKO at the time, the story goes that he was at a party and the title Cat People was suggested to him. According to Bodine, Kerner believed vampires, werewolves, and man made monsters were overdone. But no one had done much with cats. He was very inspired by this Cat People title that was suggested to him. Luton was not very happy with this. He did not like the title, and he told Bodine that if he wanted to get out now, he wouldn't hold it against him. So let's stop right there. You've already got all this going against you. You've got a restrained budget, and you're trying to go up against these universal horror movies and now you get handed in your lap the name Cat People because the producer would put cats on the level with vampires and werewolves and Frankenstein and all that stuff. I don't think I'd be happy in this situation either. It's your first chance to prove yourself, it's your first film, and you've been given the name Cat People. It's very on the nose, if nothing else. Luton might have been a little deterred, but he wasn't going to let that get the best of him. He was full steam ahead. The original plan was to adapt a short story called Ancient Sorceries, which was set in a French town with this kind of medieval architecture is how it was described. It was about a group of devilful worshipping cat people. So it kind of fits into the title. You can see where that's coming from. Luton had a lot of background and expertise in adapting novels and stories. So that seems like a pretty good fit. Jacques Turner was not happy with that. He believed if people were going to be scared, they had to identify with the characters in the story. And he just did not see people identifying with people living in a medieval architectural town in France, especially here in the US. So the setting was moved to the United States and the adapting of the short story was halted. At this point, we do get a lot of, and you'll notice this, again, we don't have a lot from Val Luton himself, so we get a lot of conflicting sources. So we'll get snippets here from, like, you know, interviews with Mark Robeson, or interviews with Jacques Turner, or Val Luton's son. So we don't have a lot of direct sources. So what happened with the script, it was a group effort, allegedly, between Mark Robeson, Duet Bodine, Jacques Turner, and Val Luton. It was said that Val Luton heavily contributed to this. The treatment was finally completed on May 1st, 1942. They wouldn't begin principal photography until July 28th. Turner was almost fired three days into his job because the executive producer saw dailies and just wasn't happy. He called up Luton and complained about it and said, you need to fire Turner. He's not going to work out. Well, Luton gets on the phone with uh, Kerner, who again is the head of RKO at the time, and Kerner saw the raw, unedited footage. He was satisfied with it. Turner was able to keep his job, thankfully, and move on. Apparently, Turner also clashed with other higher-ups at RKO, especially over the scene... There's a scene later on in the film in a drafting room, and there's a panther in that scene. You can clearly see the panther. Turner didn't want that. He wanted to leave everything in shadows. According to him, that was the only way to do it, is you have to leave it in shadows. You have to leave it ambiguous and leave it up to the mind. I can't really argue with that. There are a lot of success stories both ways, right? There's a lot of success stories when you're showing your monster and there's a straightforward monster and you're just talking about that. But when you leave it up to the audience member and it's their interpretation of it, sometimes you can get a better reaction so I can't say that Turner was wrong in the situation so we started principal photography on July 28th and by August 21st filming had ended film ended up being around 22,000 over budget it ended up coming in at 141 thousand so still not bad still very low budget for the time take note we'll learn this later as we get on to other episodes within the series. That's a pretty good <laughs> filming time for this. Later, we're going to see that Luton's going to be pushed to the brink in these production schedules and just work to the bone. So this isn't bad. It seems like they had a decent amount of time. He's hired in 1940, and Cat People's not going to release until almost the end of 1942. So I think they had a good bit of time to produce this one, and frankly, this is their magnum opus within the unit, It's the one where they've got everyone working together. They have a lot of time to produce it. They took this name and made it into an all-time classic. That's a little spoiler. We're going to get ahead of ourselves there. So we've got the film done. It was shown to RKO executives in early October, and they were not happy. They disapproved of this film, and they were very worried about it. For them, it wasn't enough horror. There wasn't enough straightforward horror, and I don't know what you have to be thinking at the time if you're thinking like horror just equates to straight up monsters ripping people apart or whatever you want to imagine it as. For my experience, yes, it's a much more subtle film. It's not this gothic tradition of Frankenstein or Dracula or any of those. It's not even something like The Invisible Man. It's much more subdued. It's much more Controlled and it's much more tragic, I think. That's just my opinion. We've seen it time and time again where people in the contemporary times do not like a film, they don't appreciate it, they don't approve of it. Luckily that's not quite the case with cat people. Yes, the executives did disapprove, but Luton and his team would be vindicated. We had the premiere on December fifth of nineteen forty two. It premiered at the Rialto in New York, in Manhattan. In the first two weeks in the Rialto, it took in $17,000 in sales. If we want to do a comparison, the Wolfman had released for Universal a year before in the same theater, in the same period of time, took in 19500 Not too bad for the budget being much lower than the Wolfman's. I would eventually release wide on December 5th, 25th, 1942, so Christmas Day, 1942. It was quite a hit. When it premiered in LA on January 14th, it broke attendance records at the theater it played at, and that's pretty good. We've got this low budget film from an unknown team, and it comes out and it's breaking records. One source that I saw said that this had played in its first run for 13 weeks. We compare that to Citizen Kane, which only had run for 12 weeks. So it actually ran in the theaters longer if we want to get in a little bit of that how things worked back in old Hollywood I'm saying it's kind of weird probably thinking from a modern perspective of we had a release in New York City which was regional up until December 25th and then it released throughout the country and then you know January 14th it finally released in Los Angeles what we would see this nowadays as a limited release probably we would build up a limited release but even something like 1917 released In Christmas for the award season and then wide later in January. That's not quite the case here. I don't think the awards were anything they were going after. What happened in this old studio system is the studios actually owned the movie theaters. Each studio would maybe have control of different regions, and we're going to get into a lot of the golden age of Hollywood and the studio system later on, probably in the last episode of this, but that's how it worked. So you're not necessarily going to get films into a particular market. This release makes a lot of sense from that perspective. Come to find though, not everything was sunshine and rainbows in Luton's camp. Here's obstacle number two is Luton had signed a long-term contract with the RKO for a pretty low salary because he's new, he hasn't produced himself before. He's got this contract for this low salary, and now he has a hit on his hands. He has a film that was very well received and was selling out, and he's stuck with this low salary. Well, at the time, it was pretty customary. If you had this thing happen, you would break your contract and get a new one. According to writings from Val Luton, he would not do that. He was a man of pride. He was a man of principle, and he would not break his contract. So he was stuck with this RKO contract that was paying him a very low salary. He was just going to have to deal with that and be happy with it. You have to commend him for that. It's it's a respectable thing to do. I don't know if I would do the same thing if I was in his shoes. I'd probably be looking for a better deal. Think about the sports scene these days where we have you know players making contracts where they can opt out after the first year or the second year and get most of their money up front. That's not the kind of thing that would happen back then. Sometimes you get stuck to a contract. And if he hadn't had the hit, he would have still been stuck to this contract and not had the acclaim. Good on Val Luton for sticking sticking to that, but it's very sad to see. And we've seen it time a time again, right? We saw it with, you know, Bela Lugosi died poor. And we see that in Hollywood so many times back in the golden age, so-called Hollywood. There were the stars, there were the big names And there were people who were bit characters and did, you know, character acting roles and were stuck and cast typed, and they just didn't make it. That's just really sad because we look back today, and if you're thinking of Dracula or you're thinking of Cat People and other works of Luton, we just revere these films and we think of them as classics. The classics don't always pay the bills, and that's just an unfortunate reality we're going to live in. You'll see that all throughout horror movies, especially when we get into the 70s, 60s and 70s, and we get into the independent filmmakers and what they had to go through. It's very sad, but it is a part of the industry. now at this point, we've got a good background on Luton's bringings, or at least how he started out in life, and how he's got his career in film, what he did when he first came over to the States and how he got in his unit at RKO, and put out his first film. At this point, we're going to start transitioning into talking about Cat People itself. I'm going to do a brief analysis of the film. We're going to go in and talk about certain things, and certain things that would leave their mark in the industry, and there are quite a few. And then at the end, and the end of every film that we talk about, I'll give a brief, broad recommendation I'm not going to give out scores or anything like that because the main point of this podcast is to talk about the history and the heritage behind these films and give analysis of what was going on in the films and how it would impact the industry. So I don't really want to get into scores or anything like that. And anyone that knows me knows I love giving scores. I love logging things over on Letterboxd. It's a big part of my life now, sadly, but I just can't get the numbers out of my head. We're going to put those aside for this, and I'm going to give recommendations based on whether this is a must-watch, whether this is a priority recommend, or things along those lines. The first thing I want to talk about here with Cat People is it's just a landmark of a film. The funny thing is Jacques Turner He thought it was just perfect marriage, him and Val Luton, because Val Luton had his head up in the clouds. He was a very creative person. He was the the driving force behind the creativity. Whereas Jacques Turner saw himself as a very grounded man, and he was grounded in reality, and we saw that earlier. I don't want this set in France in some medieval architecture town. I want this set in New York City where people can relate to it. Real New Yorkers can relate to it. Jacques was a French man, so he didn't want... film set in his home country because he wanted the people he was showing the film to the intended audience to relate to it about the thing with the panther later he wanted to ground this film as much as possible and i think when you put that with creativity of val luton it really is a match made in heaven at this point let's go into a little background into some of the facts on the film box office numbers are harder to come by then there's a lot of dispute on this. One source says this film made $4 million domestically and $4 million internationally. That would be a huge hit. You make a film, so we've got this budget of 141 k and you're making $8 million. Well, other sources are much more conservative. I think we know that it at least made over $1 million, which is still a pretty big hit when you're taking into account inflation and what that would be today. Pretty big mega hit for a small-time horror movie but as we've established this this is a big hit for RKO and what made this a big hit that leads us into the analysis for this quick warning before we get into the discussion of cat people I will be discussing some mild spoilers at least for the film I don't think I'll go into the ending and I'll try not to in any films going forward intentionally spoil the ending of a film But in order to get into the production and the background and what things left their mark on the industry, when talking about these movies, we're going to need to at least spoil some elements of the plot. So you've been warned, if you haven't seen Cat People, please go and see it and then come back and listen to the discussion later. Let's get into a brief synopsis. I'm going to be pulling these from Letterboxd, unless otherwise noted. The exciting story of a woman who kills the thing she loves. Don't know how true that is. Serbian fashion designer Irina Dubrovna and American marine engineer Oliver Reed meet in Central Park, fall in love, and marry after a brief courtship. But Irina won't consummate the union for fear that she will turn into a panther compelled to kill her lover, pursuant to a belief harbored by her home village. Now that's not too bad of a synopsis. That gives us the basic story. Much better than we usually get on IMDb. Let's go ahead and start talking about the scene that made this film... The most famous, I would say. And that's the invention of the Luton Bus. You would think, being named the Luton Bus, and I've thought this for many years, that it was Val Luton's idea. He created this. Apparently, this scene was put together and conceived by Mark Robson, So, one of the collaborators on the film. It would be so influential that it's still used to this day really they would go through it's funny they had a little in joke is anytime they used this in one of their films they would just refer to it as the bus and I'm assuming over years it just gets elaborated on and it's just Luton's bus that's how it is and everyone forgets about poor Mark Robeson I guess if you're unaware let's go ahead and go into the background of what the Luton bus actually is there's a scene uh, later on in the film And it's this tense chase scene, this kind of cat and mouse scene. We're going through the streets. I think it's near a park. One of the characters is stalking another character. It's really quiet. There's no sound. There's no music or anything. The only sounds we hear are the footsteps of the two characters. We've got all these beautiful shadows bathing everything around it. it. Just leads up to this long drawn out chase scene. It's getting more tense and more tense as you go along. And the tension is relieved when a bus pulls up and you just hear the, I'm guessing what is like the hydraulics on the bus go off that shh sound really loud and it relieves the tension and it is that jump scare with the harmless intentions, right? It's the screeching cat, the famous screeching cat that Dr. Shock Dave Becker likes to talk about. That's really... The invention of that, that's where that comes from. It's It sets you up, there's tension, and it relieves it with something inconsequential, something that's not going to harm you. That's the invention of the Luton bus. You know very well that that is still used to this day. It wasn't just contemporary films of the time using this, and Luton and his team would go on to use this over and over again. But it's really great. It's really way ahead of his time. So that's the first thing that left its mark on the industry, and it's a long-enduring thing on the industry. I mean, we've seen countless films that have that harmless jump scare. You know it from, like, when a character will look in the mirror of a medicine cabinet, and there's nothing there, but there's tension around. And they open it, and you know there's going to be something on the other side, and they close it, and, like, it's their significant other's face, or someone's face in the mirror. <laughs> it just it relieves the tension, but there's nothing there. There's nothing harmful or anything like that malevolent there's nothing like that it's just a jump scare to relieve tension and it's not really threatening it's usually early on in films that was the Luton bus and that's that's step number one like we said Um, I think number two the lasting characteristic in all of Val Luton's films are the use of shadows and we've talked about over and over again the low budgets of these films the shadows allowed this team to create these set pieces and it hides some of the flaws or it can hide things that you maybe think are there and you're imagining in your head the audience starts to fill in things in these shadows oh what's beyond that shadow what's over there what's back there all we can see are these shadows it's really great because you can create this kind of mystique and mysteriousness of this world you don't have to spend all the money creating these extensive sets and at that point in time a lot of the things were shot in the light we didn't get into the independent filmmaking or like the low budget pictures we would get later on things were shot in the light for the most part Luton took the step to just bathe everything in shadows there's a really cool scene earlier on in the film our main heroine's visiting a psychiatrist and she's laying there on the couch in a dark room and all we can see is her face Everything else is just in shadow around her, and that's so striking, that image of Simone Simone's face right there, and you're looking at it, and that's all you can see. There's another scene way later in the movie that takes place in a pool, another very famous scene, and this is bathed in shadow as well. The only lights we're seeing are the lights in the pool, and we're seeing the character in the pool. The lights are turned off, It's really a creepy scene and a really tense scene. That's probably the most tense scene in the movie up until we get to later on. I'm going to try my best not to spoil major things later on in these films in case someone hasn't seen it. If you haven't seen Cat People or you haven't seen a lot of the films of Val Luton, I would suggest checking them out. When we have to mention scenes for their notoriety, we're going to. And I am going to go through a little analysis of my thoughts on the film as well. So just be warned about that. Before we get any further, let's go back to this point about the shadows. And there's this great documentary that's narrated by Martin Scorsese and put together by Martin Scorsese for Turner Classic Movies. And it's called Al Luton, The Man in the Shadows. It's included on the Criterion Collection release of Cat People. And I really recommend watching it. It's a good overview and broad overview of... Val Luton's life and it's kind of that double entendre he is the man in the shadows because he's not putting his name on the credits he's not taking the writing credit he's not taking any kind of credit other than producing the film but he's also bathing his worlds in shadows so there's just the multifaceted piece to that of the shadows Val Luton is a man who likes to live in the shadows he doesn't like to live in the limelight He also wanted to put some of that in his movies, that mysteriousness like we've talked about. You just can't get over the shadows. If you haven't seen this film, I think that's the first thing you will notice when you're watching is just the beautiful set pieces that are set up here. It would just, again, prevail throughout Val Lewton's career let's talk about the advent of this film when they were initially putting it together like we talked about the ancient sorcery short story that they were going to base it on it's easy to see that a lot of that made its way into the final product we have the cat people the person that can transform into a cat and we have that going on and that's definitely a similarity i don't know about the they don't get much into a devil worshiping point of it but seems like Arena is very religious in this one, and she thinks that can ward off the evil. I'm sure that has something to do with it. For this film, Luton and DeWitt Bodine actually did a lot of research into cats, and cats throughout history, and the different characteristics of cats. And that's really cool that they went through all of that just to put together this film. It just shows you that they weren't taking half steps in anything they were putting their hearts and souls into this, no matter how dumb they thought the title was. It's just really cool that they can, that Val Lewton continued to put his hole into everything, even if it damaged him later on. The lore of this is incredible. Uh, we get that opening scene at the zoo with Arena and Oliver, and we see that picture on the ground with the panther and the knife through its midsection. And it's a really great image and you know arena is obsessed with this panther at the zoo and goes and continuously draws the panther from her standpoint she thinks that she has a connection with this panther she thinks that she has this evil inside of her of this cat that's just waiting to get out if she's not repressing her emotions it's just beautiful when we get the scene back in her apartment when we're talking about king john How he came and saved the village from evil by murdering all these cat people. And I'm wondering how much of this was taken from the short story. And how much of it was ad-libbed on when they had to change things around or decided to change things around. It's really interesting, but either way, the backstory to this is fascinating. Simone Simone was the perfect choice for me as Irina. She is a very likable character. I think she's so gives off this vibe of innocence and she wants to do anything to be with Oliver and she's so willing to go see a psychiatrist if it'll help her she'll do anything she can because she feels so bad she loves this man yet she's torn because she has these repressed feelings she can't bring herself to even kiss Oliver because of all the baggage that she thinks she has with it. I mean she thinks she's going to turn into a cat and murder him. Whether that is founded or not we would find out later in the film. A couple more things on the cast in this film. This film is very well cast. We have a whole group of characters. I think that documentary I discussed earlier really gets into it and hits the nail on the head when it's saying Val Luton's characters, it's the supporting cast that are so eccentric and have these distinct personalities and they just are so memorable. You're going to remember the leading actors you're going to remember arena you're going to remember oliver you're going to remember alice which i don't know if alice is considered a supporting character or not but alice is very good too very kind of eccentric in her own right and we get several of the supporting characters that just deliver these foreshadowing moments we've got the zookeeper who's always taking care of the panther cage and sees arena there all the time he makes this comment about people to come see the panther because the panther's dangerous. The panther's just this evil creature, basically, is what he's making out to be, and maybe not helping the delusion that Arena's having, or is she having a delusion? We don't know. And we have the pet store where, and this is a really good scene where Arena and Oliver go to exchange the cat that he bought her for a bird because the cat just doesn't seem to like her, and he makes the comment, "Oh, well, this cat." Like the woman in my office earlier it seemed really friendly I don't know why it likes you oh I'm just not a cat person cats just don't like me is kind of how arena plays it off they get to the cat the pet store and the animals just go nuts over arena in there this is one of the things that leads us to believe is it just her personality or something these animals because it seems like animals have a good sense of who people are and what their intentions are and they can tell when there's someone that they're not going to like or is a bad person we're getting that vibe is it that or is it because arena is one of these cat people so she has to step out of the store the pet shop owner makes the comment about cats can just tell you can fool a person but you can't fool a cat and that's What the shop owner's saying, and she's this great character, this great eccentric character, really drives the point home there. We just see all these foreshadowing points of talking about cats, and there's so much about cats in this film. Just really well done job with what the title that was given to them. Another thing we see that leads us to maybe believe this whole, or buy into this whole cat myth before we get to the moments of truth later in the film... Is this scene at Oliver and Arena's engagement party, I guess it is? And we see this woman walk in and we hear the remarks from the guests there at the restaurant and they're like, oh, she looks like a cat. Who is that woman? She looks like a cat. And I'll make all these comments and she makes eye contact with Arena and says the line of sister in Arena's native tongue. Arena is just shook by this. She, she makes the, the sign of the cross and just looks so so stirred up by this and Oliver's just like well it can't be that bad it was just one word right she explains oh she said sister and that it just hits home because she looks like a cat and she's calling you sister so she's recognizing you as one of one of her own it's just a great scene and a great moment to build more on this character and to build the back and forth of what Arena's thinking and why she could be thinking these things. And we really get into that and see in her mind. I could see where you grew up with these stories. You grew up with this background and history and being told all this stuff. And now you're in this situation. You've never been close to someone before because of this. And now you're thrown into this situation and all these different coincidences keep happening. She just knows something's wrong with her. And she knows something's going to happen if she acts on her impulses, and goes further with Oliver, does anything with Oliver, she's going to turn into a cat, essentially, is what she's thinking, and attack and kill someone. She doesn't want that. I could see why. That's the whole premise and background of this film. Is what's going on with Arena? Is she a cat? Is she not a cat? That's the whole suspense in this whole thing. Is she just delusional? Is she having... We get a psychiatrist later on. Is she having mental health issues does she need to be admitted to a sanitarium or is this something that's much more real in the studio i don't think let us get an as much of that as we could have we could have had a much bigger debate on our hands is this or is this not real if they were shot this the way jock turner wanted to be shot but we'll never know and we got the film we got and the film that we got is pretty good i'm happy with it i can live with not having the suspense The other major piece of this film, other than the is she or isn't she, is the love triangle. And that can go back and tie into the first part as well. The first, is Arena a cat person or not? And we get Alice who works with Oliver. They seem really close and they work together all the time. And you can just see that there's some romantic feelings there from the beginning, or at least very familiar with each other. I think that just tears Arena up inside. I think that eats at her, and little by little, and Oliver doesn't help the situation. You can see the clear point in the film when he starts turning on this and when he starts pushing away Arena. At some point, you can't blame him, but it's just so sad and you feel so bad for Arena. She is just made to be such a tragic character. We really feel for her and what she's going through. You wonder. If this doesn't tie back into that old conundrum and we've seen this in movies several times where we've got a love triangle or we've got you're with someone and they're just not giving you let's just say they're not giving you what you want and they're not giving in to whatever you want and they're more reserved and they're reluctant maybe they're saving themselves if we're talking along this narrative. And then you've got another girl who has no problem with it, and I'm not saying that's anything with Alice in this one, but Alice certainly isn't afraid to, we don't see it on film, but I get the idea that she would certainly not be afraid to kiss Oliver like Arena does. They've lived together, they've been married, and Arena says it at points she just does not feel like Mrs. Reed, and that is so striking yeah she lives with this person she's married this person but she can't be all of mrs reed that she needs to be that eventually drives her away from oliver and it drives this wedge between them to the point where when she's like okay i've straightened out my life i've turned things around when it gets to that point it's already too late and there's no turning back we've just seen that story play out over and over again as well and it's a tale as old as time the love triangle Are you gonna go over to a greener pasture? The grass is always greener over there on the other side. That's an interesting part of this film as well when we're discussing the two main driving forces between the plot that romance angle, that love triangle was added in after they decided they weren't going to set this film in France anymore as I think to drive more of the plot, maybe fill in some of the holes to add that tension with that too we really get some tense moments between alice and arena we talked before about the scene with the bus and arena stalking alice alice thinks it's something that wasn't human and i think alice is really buying into this again you've got characters in here like oliver who just do not believe it and think it's just crazy to talk about this and then you've got alice who's Believes, you know, maybe there is some truth to this stuff, and we've got Doctor Judd, who who knows what Doctor Judd is thinking. The guy's kind of a slime ball. We'll see that later on, but yeah, we've got all kinds of characters in this world. Some believe it, some don't. Um, some think she's crazy, some think she's not, and that's the whole playing into this. But she does get kind of crazy there at the end when she's stalking Alice, you know, following her and Oliver to a restaurant, and following Alice back to her home. That's when we get that great pool scene it's just a lot of the tension comes from that love triangle i don't think we'd have as strong a story as we do without that piece what else do we want to talk about here on cat people i think one interesting thing is we talked about dr judd and how he is a bit of a slime ball i think that's my opinion but you're welcome to have your own he does give an interesting little shot here now we've already established time and time over on this podcast that Universal and RKO, at least RKO was out to compete with Universal, we don't know what Universal was thinking at the time probably thought, you know RKO was a fly on their back and not much of a competition we already discussed that the Wolfman came out a year prior well, there's a little line here and I think it's kind of a shot at the Wolfman, Dr. Judd is talking to Arena and says something about a silver bullet do I have a silver bullet I think that's just a fun little line and poking at their competition so that's pretty cool to see that that early on I don't know I could be taking that way out of context but I don't see how you could take the time period and that's the battle between those two films they're a year apart I think that's pretty funny they're taking jabs at Universal the other thing we've talked about how Simone Simone's character is such a tragic character it's just really sad to see this downward spiral we start to see it bit by bit things like the bird she gets discouraged over not being able to even kiss Oliver and then we see her take the key to the panther cage when the zookeeper is not looking that's just kind of the slow downward spiral And her following Alice around, and then she goes and talks to Dr. Judd like we had discussed earlier. Then it just collapses, and it's complete insanity from there on out. You get this bright point where Rena's like, oh, I'm going to change my life around. And Val Luton says, no, you will not get this happy ending. You will not get this kind of ending you want. You are going to get this very sad, very tragic, very unfortunate ending. I think it's much better that way, and it really has stood the test of time and holds up. I don't know what else there is to say as far as analysis on this film. I'm going to go ahead and move into reviewing, or giving my brief summary. Cat People is an absolute classic. It would probably fall somewhere in my top 25 horror movies of all time. I think the suspense and the tension and the use of shadows is great here the acting, the directing, every single piece of this film comes together when it probably shouldn't. And just the backstory, this time I focused in so much on this backstory and this legend and lore of these cat people back in Arena's home. And I think I had an appreciation for that, that I maybe had skipped over before. I didn't remember going back into this, and I've seen this a few times, I didn't even remember the thing about King John going through the village and routing the cat people and it's just so great that whole background and setup the rest of the film just gives you everything you want this might be controversial actually I like this better than anything Universal put out I know that's going to be really controversial for some but this is my favorite film pre-1950s that's That's saying something. We got a lot of great films, and I love a lot of the Universal films. Just Cat People has stuck with me, and I don't know... Usually I'm not in for the grounded films. I'd much rather have this over-the-top, crazy scenario. But Cat People just works, and I think it does have just enough of that crazy, over-the-top scenario while keeping its feet firmly on the ground. I wouldn't hesitate to recommend Cat People to anyone. If you're someone who has not gotten into black and white films, hasn't gotten into older films, I really still think you can appreciate Cat People. Maybe it'll bounce off of you, but that's okay. It's worth a try for something this good. Uh, Cat People comes with my absolute highest recommendation. The highest recommendation I can give. It is a must-watch, and if you haven't seen it, why are you listening to this podcast where I've just spoiled it? There's not much more to say. This is a must-have if you're a collector. There's a great Criterion Collection release as I spoke about earlier. I love the Criterion releases. They really do a real good job and there's some good extras on there. That is my talk on Cat People 1942 in the first of Val Luton's films. I want to thank anyone who has taken the time to listen to this first episode and given the podcast a chance. I hope you'll stick around. This has really given me an outlet to merge my love of history and horror films I really love looking in the background of things I have an almost obsession with I can't just learn one thing about a film I can't learn something about one film if there's been more I have to go back and at least know about them whether they're good or bad or anything in between it's just I always have had this obsession with the history of things and the background and how did we get here in this point in the industry What happened over here in this point in the industry or that point in the industry? Well, that's something you can look forward to going forward. We'll continue our Val Luton series here, of course, and look for more topics in a broader range that aren't just going to focus on one singular person or creator. We'll go all over the industry. If you're interested in hearing more, you can subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast feed. Check the show out on Twitter at Screaming Ages. I have a website, ScreamingThroughTheAges.com, and an email, ScreamingThroughTheAges at Yahoo.com. If you're interested in giving any feedback, or whether you like the show or not, negative or positive, anything to help out, that'd be appreciated. You can reach out on Twitter or email, or leave a comment on the show under the show notes on the website. Homework for the next episode. On our next episode, we're going to be moving into talks about the next films for Val Lewton and what the struggles were for his team as they continued to move forward. I'll be talking about the films I Walked with a Zombie and The Leopard Man. So please watch those if you're interested to get you caught up before next episode and that nothing's spoiled for you. Until then, I will see you on the next episode for your bi-weekly horror movie history lesson. Thanks for listening.